I don't know about you guys, but it's been a crazy morning for me. Between the, our staff meets every morning at 7.30, then uh, rushing over here for rehearsal. Uh, I like to drop in to the encouragers class on Sunday mornings, get a little bit of encouragement. Then I got to teach my Bible study. Done leading worship. I've got wires everywhere wrapped around me. But we are here and ready to open God's word. I don't know. I don't know if anybody else is getting a little bit of that reverberation. I don't know if uh, the soft mute is on. Might help a little bit. All right. How many of you remember your dreams? Wave at me. Okay. That's a good number. I cannot count myself among that group. Uh, Rachel does, and I hear about it. <laughs> but you see, I asked how many remember your dreams? Because science, sleep scientists, there is such a thing, tell us that we all dream. In fact, we typically have our first dream about 90 minutes into our sleep cycle when we hit the REM, R-E-M, rapid eye movement cycle, and then have a dream roughly every 90 minutes following that, accounting somewhere between four and six dreams every night. Recall is a different story. Uh, we don't know why some people recall their dreams and why others don't. There's been some speculation for you dream recallers that people who remember their dreams uh, show higher levels of creativity and may have more imaginative thinking in their daily lives. We do know that dreams can be impacted by life experiences, but dreams can also be entirely random. And for those who regularly remember their dreams, the question is often asked, what does it mean? Well, I would suggest that not every dream has a meaning. However, we are offered some very clear cases in Scripture where the dreamer has some certainty that their dream has some sort of hidden meaning. And our text this morning relates to one of those situations. Today we will continue our series in the book of Daniel. Over the past two weeks, we've been given some introduction into what it means for our lives lived in exile. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And uh, we are here as exiles. More specifically last week, Pastor Brent outlined how our life in exile has a specific call to holiness. And then he gave us this alliterated pattern, the risk of holiness, the reason for holiness, and the reward for holiness. Well, our text this morning, chapter 2, illustrates this first point, the risk of holiness. And we will see this as a recurring theme throughout Daniel as we have many more stories to get to. Uh, but I want us to see in God's word today how when holiness puts our lives at risk, how should we respond? I want to give you three weapons of warfare that when you are faced with a difficult situation and your faith lies in the balance, how should you respond? And we will look at the three responses of a faithful witness in the face of adversity. Before we open God's word, let us pray and ask for his guidance. Father, thank you this morning for your word. 
I thank you for the example of Daniel and his friends in their faithful witness. And Lord, how we can learn from that, that our eyes could be opened to see truth and the wonder that you have to show for us today, that we could be helped and that we could leave here better equipped on how to face the inevitable adversity that comes into our lives. May you be the focus, and may we see you today revealed. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, Daniel chapter 1, just for those who are counting, is 21 verses. Daniel chapter 2 is 49 verses. So we got a lot of ground to cover today. And instead of reading all of it up front for you, we're going to read it a piece at a time, and then we're going to talk about that current audience, that original audience, how they responded, and how that can flow over into our responses today. So beginning in Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Well, then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you, show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Okay, pause there. What we know so far, Nebuchadnezzar has some dreams. These dreams have robbed him of some sleep, and he apparently couldn't remember the dreams, at least not completely. So he summons together the ma magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. These would be considered the cream of the crop of the occult. Uh, later, they're noted as his wise men or also astrologers. And we dis discover that the charge to them is not just to interpret the dream, as he tells it to them, but rather they need to tell him what he actually dreamed and then explain it. And then if they are unsuccessful in doing so, there are consequences. Namely, they will be torn limb from limb. And their homes will be, uh, the text tells us, laid in ruins. And this is our ESV. That's what I'm using this morning, the English Standard Version. The NIV says that their homes have become a pile of rubble. Um, but it's the King James that's a little bit more, a little bit less euphemistic and says that their houses will become dunghills. <laughs> Namely is their houses will quite literally become outhouses. And so at this point in time, if I were among these occult trained men, I might be second-guessing my uh, profession. <laughs> so, the narrative continues. 
Nebi says, if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, well, let the king tell the servants the dream and then we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Pause again. King sweetens the deal a little bit here by explaining that success in this matter results in reward and honor. And, but yet he also doubles down on the ramifications that, of what happens in not succeeding in this task. And then we finally get a moment of honesty from these wizards. Uh, they correctly identify that no man can do the thing that the king is asking. Rather, this is an area reserved for what they say, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, it may be helpful uh, for us to, to see and know that the word gods here, translated with a little g, is actually the same word that gets translated God with big G uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament. It is possible, although most modern translations still use the little g, but it is possible that the Chaldeans here are actually admitting and giving credit to the one true God as the only one who is capable of doing this. Because even the occult, even the demons recognize that there is a God. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did not take well to this news. Continuing verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The king had already stated the consequences. However, now he's kind of extending the audience beyond those originally summoned. Clearly, this dream had done a number on Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I question a little bit the wisdom of this mass execution of, quote, all the wise men. Like, what happens to your nation when you eliminate anyone with wisdom? But more than that, it seems that his dream had given him 
some short-term memory loss. So let's take a quick refresher. We're going to turn back to chapter 1 and see how chapter 1 ended. Because after Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego uh, determined not to eat the king's diet, but to stick to water and veggies, we find this in Daniel 1, beginning in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spake and spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Just a reminder, these, these gentlemen all have two names. One is their Hebrew name, which uh, is what we find right there in that verse, and the other is their Babylonian name. Therefore, these four men, youths, stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. You see, it already had been revealed that Daniel had this understanding in all visions and dreams. These Four youths were found ten times better than the occult leaders in every aspect. The irrationality of the king here to include Daniel and his crew under the sentence brought against the Chaldeans exposes the king's state of mind. But we'll note that the word gets to Daniel of what's in store for him. He doesn't overreact. Our text says he responded with prudence and discretion. He is granted an audience with the king, and he requests a continuance with future assurance that the king will find the answer he seeks. When you, in your life, are faced with adversity, such as Daniel is here, now granted, the adversity we face may be a little bit less extreme, is your first response one of prudence and discretion? Or do you panic, grow anxious, consider the worst case scenario? If the world is watching you, and they are, do they see a peace that surpasses understanding? Or do they see a fear of the unknown? It took 13 verses of our chapter for Daniel to be introduced into the narrative. We're past this introduction. But we want to know, how is Daniel able to maintain such a level head when his faith, his very life, is at risk? My answer for you this morning will be the three responses of a faithful witness in the face of adversity. And the first response for Daniel is prayer. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel gathers them together, and he says, Boys, it's time for a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. It's time to approach the throne of grace. 
Now, this response seems as obvious as knowing that the answer to every Sunday school question is Jesus. First response should be prayer. The first response of a faithful witness in the face of adversity is prayer. Why is it not always our first response? Well, we want to be a people of action. We live in a DIY society. You know, there are TV channels entirely devoted to this, to tips, tricks, instructions on how to do things yourself. I'm as guilty as anyone uh, of wanting to be self-sufficient. I don't like to pay someone else to do something I can figure out on my own. Uh, You may even find me changing my own oil if time permits. Although that's probably the one area where it's kind of like, eh, it probably saved me just as much money and hassle as to have someone else do it. Auto work is not my specialty. Uh, but a few weeks ago, we, Rachel's carpet having some issues, her van, and so we took it to the shop, and they said, uh, they gave us an estimate, and they told us they need a lot of suspension work. Well, I looked at the list, and I'm like, I can do all this. Have I done it before? No. But I consulted the YouTube and somebody else has done it before and has shown me how. But unfortunately, we were in a bit of a, like I'm trying to lay out my week, like when can I squeeze this in? Because we were going on vacation and we were going to take this vehicle and we were going to take it roughly 2,000 miles and You don't want to, if your suspension is already having trouble, you don't want to do that, especially loaded down as much as we did uh, on vacation. Um, That's another story for another day, especially the comeback. It was heavier coming back than going. And that's not because of how much I ate. All right. But, uh, so we have this appointment set, and like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and let the experts do this. But then her car actually starts really riding rough. And I go and I grab my, and the check engine light comes on, which is not suspension problem. And I plug in my OBD2 adapter, right? And I read that engine trouble code, and it turns out that cylinder number four is misfiring. Now, for many of you, this means nothing, but uh, I kind of have an idea of at least what that is. And uh, so I run up to... Uh, advanced auto parts shout out to Michael Donovan uh, who's who works there and got me an ignition coil and six new spark plugs because if you're going to get in and change the spark plugs you might as well change them all and then I get on YouTube and find out somebody else has done this thankfully and I go through and I change the ignition coil and six spark plugs now had I ever done this before no In fact, I had uh, not only had it's not that I hadn't done this on this vehicle. I'd never done this, but I knew that this is something I could do, and I got it done, and everything was fine. And then we took it in for the ignition work. It took me two to three hours, a couple bloody knuckles, uh, but it was worth the savings, and I proved myself to be self-sufficient. But what I don't want to do now is to be naive enough to say that prayer is equivalent to YouTube. It is not. But prayer is a means of admitting our own helplessness. 
and God's sufficiency. Prayer is a way that we consult the expert of all things. Too often we try to do it on our own, try to do it on our own, try to do it. And in life, a lot of things, you should really try to do things on your own. You should try. I mean, the bootstrap economy is, is there for a reason. But prayer is the anti-DIY. Because we don't do it ourselves. More than that, prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. It's like, hey, I can't, I tried, I tried, I tried, I couldn't figure it out on my own, and now I'm going to go to the creator of all things. Jesus tells you, says, when you pray, not if you pray. It is to be expected that prayer is an occupation of our holiness. Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. That is, we should strive for a constant awareness of our inability and that it is God who works in us his good pleasure to accomplish his will. I want to be fair in setting expectations. Our text does not reveal how long Daniel and his team prayed. It doesn't identify what time passed between the petition and the response. I don't want you to think that God is going to answer all of your prayers immediately. Many times, and, and part of this is because many times in our prayer, we, we seek a specific answer. Jesus even evidenced this in Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, alongside Christ's request for a specific answer, he acknowledged the greater request is for God's will. And we can do that too. We can pray for specific things, and then it's like this little tagline, but... If you had something better in mind, God, I'll take that instead. We let go and let God have his way. Now, I do want to also say you can have an immediate answer to prayer. That is, if you pray with full trusting, the answer may not be the final answer, but it is an answer of faith, confidence, and it is a peace and assurance that God is sovereign and in control and that come what may, his will will be done. You have let it go. You have released it into his hands. And he can immediately provide you that peace that surpasses understanding. The first weapon in our arsenal is prayer. Well, let's pick up, back up with Daniel and his compatriots in their supplication. Verse 19 of chapter 2 says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, as Darcy read for us this morning, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might. You have now made known to me what we asked of you 
for you have made known to us the king's matter. And here we find the second response of a faithful witness in the face of adversity. Praise. Prayer was that inward focus that God is sovereign, and in praise we let it out. The psalmist writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So just as we pray without ceasing, we praise without ceasing. I really enjoy reading C.S. Lewis, um, but praise was a stumbling block for him. In his book, Reflections in the Psalms, uh, he didn't understand immediately the vanity of God because God continually declaring praise towards himself or calling others to praise him. There's a quote of kind of when C.S. Lewis figures out what's going on. He says, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. He, he goes on to say, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is, it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is, or to come suddenly at the turn in a road upon some mountain valley of experience unexpected grandeur, and then have to keep silent because the people you are with care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. Or to hear it, this is me, to hear a good joke and to find no one to share it with, especially a dad joke. The Scotch Catechism said that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, but we shall then know that these things are the same thing. To fully enjoy is to fully glorify. And in commanding us to glorify him, God is in inviting us to enjoy him. Praise is the appointed consummation if, of all those things that we find lovely and beautiful. That it is incomplete until we can share it. When you go out uh, and hear, we just came back from Florida and there's, we had some beautiful sunsets, but yet... I will say, here in Mainville, in this fall time period, we get some beautiful displays in the sky uh, at, at dusk. And when you see those things, you want to share it. This is, where's the share button? <laughs> There's a beautiful sky, share. If only we could do that, because that is... It's that our joy is almost incomplete because we have it to ourselves. Sometimes I think about this, that you, you can be in a place uh, where maybe people aren't around you. you know, uh, I know those who go out camping uh, in 
and when I mean camping, not glamping, but true camping, out in the tents, out on the trails. Uh, I think of Kirby. Uh, and you, you probably, you know, you, you see these beautiful things, and there aren't people 10 miles from you. And you realize that God set that up just for you and how wonderful of a God he is. And so Daniel comes in his reaction instead of panic, instead of anxiety, instead of worst case scenario, he prayed about it and now he praises God. And part of this is because of what he has seen, like he now knows the end of the vision. And we'll look a little bit at that in our benediction. But he now has this overwhelming confidence and praises the Lord. Spurgeon says that praise is the rehearsal of our eternal song. Sometimes I would, would say when we come to sing together, uh, that this is a little bit of practice for heaven because uh, there's not going to be preaching in heaven, but there's going to be a lot of praising. Spurgeon continues, By grace we learn to sing, and in glory we continue to sing. What will some of you do when you get to heaven if you go on grumbling all the way? Do not hope to get to heaven in that style, but now begin to bless the name of the Lord. The second weapon in our arsenal is praise. Well, let's turn and look at Daniel's third response, namely proclamation. Verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name, Babylonian name, was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No. Now before we continue here, I want to remind you of Daniel's first two responses, prayer and praise, because it's important to note that boldness in proclamation is preceded by a life saturated by prayer and praise. It takes some guts for Daniel to start his response to the king when he says, are you able to show this to me? And he says, no. He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Verse 28, but there is a God. I told Ryan last week I was going to try to find a way to title my message today, but there is a God. Oh, well. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. In the following verses, Daniel reveals the details of the dream and its interpretation. 
And it does indeed reveal some future things to Nebuchadnezzar. One of which is that the kingdom he has built will be replaced. And I'm sure Daniel is hoping that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't shoot the messenger. But more than that, there are details of the interpretation that have yet to come to fruition. I will say books have been written about this interpretation in an effort to determine and to outline what has yet to be fulfilled. However, if you are looking uh, for an exposition of the king's dream, you're not going to get that today. Uh, I apologize for any of you who are big fans of apocalyptic literature. But our goal is today is to understand the three responses of a faithful witness. Prayer, praise, and proclamation. It is likely apocryphal, but there is a quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, Preach the gospel every day. If necessary, use words. Well, I'm here to tell you that words are necessary when proclaiming the gospel. Yes, we should preach the gospel with our lives. Peter says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because the implication here is that a life lived in hope and confidence in the sovereignty of God is going to have people asking. People will ask you, uh, how can you manage to have peace under such circumstances? We have a uh, friend and that, uh, who uh, has an adult daughter who is 26 years old and has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Uh, she's young, married, and they've recently called in hospice. But it has, as much as my heart hurts for that situation, this young woman and her family have been such bastions of hope and show such confidence in the goodness and sovereignty of God in the brevity of life. And, uh, and so people ask them, how can you be like this? And it opens the door for proclamation. I also think that Peter's gentleness and respect might pair well with Daniel's prudence and discretion. And in our proclamation, we have confidence in God's word. Paul tells us in, in Romans 10, uh, verse 13, he says, For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Sometimes this is taken a little bit out of context, or we like to just pick the one verse. Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 14, he says, How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless without someone to preach? The word preach here is not referring to a pastor or evangelist. or just The word means to proclaim. How can we expect people to believe the gospel without some proclaimers? Even those, even those that are willing to walk 500 miles to do so. 
Thank you. I was waiting for somebody. I think that our three responses this morning are hierarchical. That is, they build on each other. Because it is possible to praise without praying. It is possible to proclaim without prayer and praise. However, the efficacy of our proclamation is multiplied by our prayer and our praise. If you, like me, sometimes find it difficult to find the words or the opportunity to winsomely, or that is with gentleness and respect paired with prudence and discretion, for you to proclaim the gospel to your neighbors, family, friends, co-workers, acquaintances, perhaps it is because we haven't spent adequate time in prayer and praise. You want to see the salvation of others? You better be praying for them. And you better be praising the God who is the God of salvation. Last week, Brent's final point was the reward of holiness. And as will be repeated through many of the narratives in Daniel, there is a reward of holiness in this story. For after revealing the dream and its interpretation, uh, we pick up in the last verses, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. He's a little bit confused about how things should work, uh, but... Uh, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole providence, province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. As we conclude this morning, I want to say that adversity is inevitable. It is unlikely that you or I will face the threat of death as a result of our faith, but as we, living as exiles in a temporary abode that is not our home, we live our lives before a watching world. The enemy would love nothing more than to see us falter in our faith. But let us be faithful witnesses in the face of this inevitable adversity through responding in prayer, in praise, and Proclaiming that there is a God who loved the world so much that he would send his son to pay the penalty of our sin so that anyone who calls on the name of Jesus in a response to make him Lord of their life will find salvation. Would you pray? Father, we love you this morning. I'm encouraged by Daniel and I'm challenged by it. Lord, I want to lean and rely on you more. I want to admit my inability to rightly respond when adversity comes my way. 
Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to praise. And Lord, give us boldness to proclaim who you are, what you've done, and that you bring hope and you will give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, as we respond to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing in our response. Uh, there is opportunity. There will be uh, someone down here in front to, if you want someone to pray with you. And then I'm going to be in the lobby afterward if you have any questions or uh, about either this message or anything about the church. We'd love to talk with you.